This is Rad Talk with Tracy, the podcast. This is a place where you'll discover what's possible when people impacted by reactive attachment disorder inspire change and build community through sharing their stories and expertise. I'm Tracy Poffenroth Prado, and I'm your host. I'm really glad you're here. And before we get started, if you like the podcast, please click like, share, and write a review. It helps so much. Let's get started. Many of you have heard of my next guest. Her name is Carrie Williams. She's an award-winning author and, of course, a rad mom. Her latest book, But He Spit in My Coffee, her book just won the 2022 Indie Reader Discovery Award and the 16th National Indie Excellence Award. She's here today to talk with us about her book, her life as a rad mom, adoptive parent, all that good stuff. So I'm not going to waste any more time. Carrie, thanks so much for being here. It's good to see you. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Where should we start? You want to talk about your your life first, your book? What came first, the chicken or the egg? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, the book was definitely born out of my life. Um, right. It was definitely something that I did. I wrote after I had lived kind of the rad mom life. And I was so shocked as many moms are by discovering rad, understanding what it was, understanding the lack of resources that when I kind of came through that, I was like, I've got to do something to try to help, to try to change the narrative, to try to educate people. And because I'm a writer, that was kind of the way I took to doing that kind of like you do podcasts. I was like, I'm going to, you know, write. Right. So um, that was definitely my goal was to use my writing to help people. And I'm glad you're here. And I'm glad you say that because I am lucky enough to speak to other people out there making a difference. A lot of authors, a lot of professionals, a lot of families, and that's what it's about. And the more that I talk to people, the more I realize there really are resources. It's usually us parents, but not always. It's just really nice to meet somebody else with some information. And your book was incredible. I just have to say that I bought it and I read it in one day. (laughs) So I highly encourage everybody to buy Carrie's new book, her latest book. And uh, if you do be prepared to sit in the same spot, probably for the rest of the day, because it's that that captivating. And you and I were talking about uh, your book and Mm -hmm. how you set it up. So you wrote it as a memoir, but it reads like a novel. And then you also outlined it into parts. And those Mm -hmm. parts were based on the model of grief. Yes. So I guess the first part, um, writing it to read like a novel, that was very deliberate. I, when I first started writing it, it took me about six years to write the book. Did it really? Uh, Yes. I I did take a break in the middle. (laughs) but it took about six years and I kind of started writing it as a typical memoir, which pretty much, you know, any rad mom's going to read because we all want to read each other's stories. But um, <laughs> yeah, as, <laughs> as I started writing it, I thought this is not going to change the narrative. It's, it's the same thing. It's not going to do any, it's not going to affect the lives of people who've never heard of rad. And I started thinking about how we always say, you know, you have to live it to understand it. You have to live it to get it. What can I do in that direction? And that's why I really deliberately wrote it to read like a novel, which it does. It has very little, you know, commentary or any sort of discussion like that on purpose so that people can kind of live through it our lives. 
and they can actually become immersed in it, just like you become immersed in, you know, your favorite novel and you live through the character and they can come as close as possible to really experiencing what it's like in our houses. And not just for, not just for our family and friends, but also really, I think for um, therapists or educators or doctors or nurses or anyone who's dealing with us, who I think they don't understand some of the nuances unless you're actually in those homes. And so my, my vision was to kind of, uh, bring them into our homes. Well, you definitely did that. And that's a really great way to get through to people is to actually experience it. Or like you say, get as close to it as you can by actually feeling what Mm -hmm. we go through every moment of every day. Right. And that was, you know, as a writer, that's one of the reasons I wrote it in first person present tense also, because that puts the reader in the story. Definitely. I mean, so those were just some of the, the, you know, writing choices that I was very deliberate in to try to kind of add that as a tool um, that we didn't have before kind of as rad parents, because there are some other great books out there, um, but I was trying to kind of do a different, a different tool. Um, and then in, in terms of what you mentioned about the stages of grief, I did not initially, even when I was writing it, once I realized I was going to write it as a, like a novel, I didn't initially use the stages of grief. And as I kept writing it, like I said, it took six years to write it writing it was very cathartic for me. And I worked through a lot of my own feelings, a lot of my own um, kind of process, processing what had happened and why it had happened, my own feelings, because of course there's so much shame that goes into this. So much. Yeah, a lot. And I was also extremely angry, um, Mm. which was something that, you know, anybody who's read this book really understands from, I'm sure it emanates through a lot of the book was my anger. And I realized that um, that was all coming from a sense of grief of really being very disillusioned with adoption and what I had thought adoption was going to be with myself as a mother, being so disappointed with myself for not being able to be what I thought I could be. And ultimately, I realized that I was being asked asked to be something I couldn't be and to do something mm-hmm. I couldn't do. So I was really asking myself something that was unfair. But still, you still have those feelings of grief and kind of working through that. What you just said there, asking yourself to be somebody that you couldn't be. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. I think a lot of us uh, do that as rad moms. And that's one of the things that I, I try to talk about a lot Mm -hmm. is I think one of the ways that we free ourselves as rad moms is uh, resetting our expectations for ourselves. Huge. That I think is the magic. That is the key. Getting there is tough. But yes. when you can, boom, that's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. And if you can do it, I was, you know, my, my son, who's now um, 20, he sends me a, you know, a meme of a cat and I write back, I send him a little smiley face back and I'm like, wow, this is a success. And yeah. that is, and, and, you yeah. know, six, 10 years ago, I would not have seen that as a success at all. I wanted mm-hmm. way more than that, but to me, that's great. That's a positive relationship moment. You know, um, we're not having any conflict. He's reaching out to me in a positive way, you know, and that's all about resetting expectations. And it's nice. I have to say when they're outside of your home and you have that extra distance between you that allows you to see that cat meme or picture as a positive, right. When you've had some time to, to step away, I still can't get over what you said about you know, because we're talking about parenting and you do, you go into parenting, whether, you know, it's biological or adoptive, you think you're going to be this parent that you really see yourself being. And we often keep 
trying? Like, did you feel like you, you kept trying to be that person? So I love that you, there's acceptance in what you said or awareness, acknowledging the fact that you couldn't be. And so Mm -hmm. you were in this situation. So fighting the impossible, right. Or trying to be something and, and keep pushing, pushing, pushing when that must've felt very good to recognize and also admit it to yourself that, Hey, I, I just can't be this person. I, I think, I think it does. It's very freeing to be able to let go of that for yourself. It's hard, of course. And I know you probably feel this as well because the world doesn't accept that from you. Right. So you still get that pressure from everybody else who doesn't acknowledge that for you. Doesn't give you that pass. Doesn't say it's okay. Right. You did the best you could and the best you can do is enough. So I think that's always going to be the challenge for us, you know, and being able to still accept that for ourselves and say, you know what, it's okay that you, you don't understand. This is still true for me. This is still true for all of us moms, because we really do get it. And we understand this is something you just can't understand. Right. And you were talking about your anger. You lived in that Mm -hmm. for a long, long time, Mm -hmm. which you're not alone in that. Yeah. I, I think that a lot of, a lot of us don't get help until we're very angry. Mm. Um, and that was certainly my case. And a lot of people I talked to, that's the case for them. And I think in a lot of ways, it's too late at that point mm-hmm. because you no longer like your child. You can no longer be reasonable. You can't, there's no a lot longer, of resentment. Yes. You can't engage anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't, you know, you're the therapist would say, you know, why don't you give your son a hug? And I'd be like, Oh my God, no. Right. You know, and so then of course your therapist looks at you like you are the worst mother in the world. And really, you know, I tell people I became a bad mom for a while. Yeah. And I did, but that's because you're living in this horrible situation and you're just respond. You're a person, you're just a a normal person with normal feelings. So of course you're going to become like that. We don't like to accept that from moms because we think moms are superheroes, but we're Mm -hmm. not. And I think, I think a big part of the solution to this is trying to get to the moms much, much earlier before they get to that point, because it's almost, it's too late, really. By the time you get to that point, they have to do what you said, which is you've got to have some distance and recover. Yeah. It took me a good two years of my son being in residential treatment before I could engage back with him and start to build any attachment with him. And feel like you'd have it, you've had enough distance to not feel that resentment and anger. Mm-hmm. And heal, heal through that. Yeah. Getting there sooner is definitely the key, but it's hard because just like when you're in crisis and people try and give you all these parenting tools or therapeutic parenting advice, you can't function there. I couldn't be a therapeutic parent because like you say, I was in that place. I was just too far gone. And, but when you're there too, it's really hard to pull yourself out. It's really, really hard to pull yourself out. You know, I think just like our kids. And I always say that we mimic that same we're traumatized. And so we're in that elevated hypervigilant state, you know, you lived in anger and I lived in anger, but also control. I just could not let go of trying to search for that solution, right? Find the right thing that was going to help my child and help our family. I just couldn't let go of beating that dead horse, you know, because, and it's not that it's the child, but 
for our situation, the resources weren't there, or if they were, they weren't accessible. Some of these um, uh, treatment centers that really sound great and very rad informed were about $40,000 a month, not accessible for my family. So I had a really hard time of letting go of trying and pushing and pushing and pushing until I pushed myself to like where you say you got right. Just Mm -hmm. nothing left and resentful and angry. And I think, I don't know if you have other children, but I, one of my biggest regrets is not realizing I was in that place earlier because of my other children. Cause it's one thing to do it to myself, but I feel like my other kids lost so much of their childhood um, before I realized that that's what was happening. And Mm -hmm. I changed my goals because there was a certain point when my son was, I guess, maybe 15 or so where I changed my goals and my goal became to survive, to get him to 18 Mm -hmm. and to protect my other kids and to help my kids have a good childhood and to kind of really to help the kids I could help. Cause I realized I can't, I can't help him. Even if I bring him home, even if I do all these things, nothing is going to work. Nothing's going to help. So I have to kind of stop doing that, you know, and kind of just keep him as safe as I can. And you know, do things for my kids, including his um, biological sister, who I also adopted. And I wish I had realized that sooner because I think it was very, very harmful to my other kids. And I didn't realize that in the moment, which I think is something that happens to a lot of families. They kind of think that their kids are very resilient, but they're not, you know, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are being really traumatized. It makes me sad to hear that because I, I still hear that sadness of, I wish I could have been. And really in that moment, we as rad parents are stretched to we're in survival mode and barely functioning to even have the mindset when you're focused on the one child or two or three, however many you have with reactive attachment disorder, they just demand a hundred percent of your attention. So that just like if somebody's giving you advice on parenting or, and, you know, therapeutic parenting, not just parenting advice, because we know that doesn't work, but you just can't take it in because you're really hanging by a thread. So I, I don't think it would have been possible for you to see that until that time where you, your nervous system could calm down. Mm-hmm. and be mm-hmm. able to be there. It's good advice. And I think that's really good for people to hear what you're saying so that, you know, somebody pointing it out, will maybe jog that, but I don't, I don't think you could have seen it until you saw it. And that was the mm-hmm. right time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's the sucky thing about reactive attachment disorder is the lack of resources, but even the lack of awareness going in. I mean, you know, we, we talked to so many parents and, uh, how many of us really knew our kids had reactive attachment disorder? How many of us even knew what it was? How many of us had the tools or the support services to manage through that? Mm -mm. So we're thrown into this ring of lions with no idea that we're even going to end up there and no tools. And we're just trying to tame our situation it's hard. Mm-hmm. So it, it's so easy for other kids to, you know, the other kids in our lives to just go by the wayside, go by the wayside and not on purpose. But if you don't mm-hmm. manage the one kiddo, then your family still falls apart. Oh yeah. yeah. And how many kids, cause you have, you're uh, I have a five. biological mom, a stepmom, and a 
adoptive mom, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. I have five. Well, my, my stepson is the oldest and then he, my son with Rad would be the next oldest. And then I have a biological son and then my adopted daughter and then a biological son. So we're like a whole, <laughs> you covered it a all whole mix, a whole mix. <laughs> now I will say my, my daughter has never been um, diagnosed with rad. I think she probably does have rad, but on the more mild end of the spectrum. And I see in her a lot of hope for parents who are educated because I have been able I have been able to do things with her and be much more successful with her. So I think, I think there's room for parents to be really successful with kids on the more mild end of the spectrum. You know, I always say how, when she was little, she used to love her pets more than she loved people. And she did. And that was actually great. And I used to really support that and promote that because I thought, well, if she can learn to love pets, then from there, she can learn to love people. Right. You know, and little things like that, you know, about attachment. And I think that we can, as parents, really help our kids with attachment. There are a lot of kids with attachment who aren't on this severe end of the spectrum that we're talking about. Right. Um, there, there really are. There are a lot of them. And there's a lot that we can do to support those children and help them many ways that we can do that. So, you know, I don't want people to get discouraged and think all of their children are going to be on this, you know, extreme end of the spectrum because it's right. not the case. It's not the case. And not every adopted child has reactive attachment disorder, right. likely attachment issues, but yes, not reactive attachment disorder. I'm similar to you where our son is a lot younger. Uh, it's his half sister, but they're, you know, bio siblings. We see the same things that you're talking about is we can implement or make some changes and we actually see mm-hmm. some progress, right. And improvement and, and that hope. Right. Yeah. So what about your other kids? Are they in the home still? Uh, so I have my youngest biological son is 15. And so he's still in high school. So he's living at home. He actually just got his driver's permit today and terrified me driving <laughs> me home earlier today. Um, and, and then my uh, daughter who's adopted, she still lives with me. She's 19. And so she's, she's got a job and we're working through that and some kind of independent life skills. Um, and she and I are very close. She's kind of, I've always been kind of her security blanket. Mm-hmm. She, for years, you know, she'll go out with people, maybe she'll go like away for a week or something. She'll come home and she'll sleep in my bed for three days. And I always say that's because I'm her security blanket. She comes back home to me. And, you know, so she definitely has like a lot of attachment to me, but anyway, so she lives at home. And then my other kids, um, I have my other biological son who I talk about in the, um, book is in the Navy. Wow. Mm-hmm. And then my, um, stepson, my oldest is, uh, he is a barber. And he lives about five hours away. And then my son who has rad, he lives 45 minutes from me. Mm-hmm. And um, I do see him pretty regularly. And like I said, I, I text him and I make some kind of, you know, deliberate choices to stay in touch with him. One thing I do is I pay for his cell phone um, and I have him on my cell plan. That's because I like to have find my iPhone. So I know where he is. And to me, that's totally worth it. You know, those are kind of the kind of trade-offs that I believe in as a rad mom. Mm -hmm. So I'm more than happy to pay for his phone. And uh, I, you know, see him pretty regularly, maybe like about once a month or so. Now, I don't know. I don't remember, Tracy, I told you this, but I did 
a few months ago, I let him come live with me. Oh, you didn't tell me that. He was in a kind of sticky situation and he needed Mm -hmm. a place to live. And I kind of got myself feeling like, well, maybe things have changed. And I felt kind of guilty and I felt kind of bad. Mm -hmm. And so I said, okay, you know, you can come and live with me for a few months. And he moved in and I started totally getting PTSD symptoms back, mm-hmm. couldn't sleep, was very, very scared, um, having a lot of those same things. And then some like, you know, he just as an example, you know, he cut the leather seat in my car. Um, and there were some things like that that were happening. And this so time, I, mm-hmm, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Some kind of like passive aggressive sort of things like that, that weren't really direct. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm not going down that path again. <laughs> and I recognized what was happening and I recognized what was happening with me and that, and the other two kids that were here at home. Um, and I moved him right back out. So he only stayed with me for about four weeks, Wow! but I did, I went down that path of feeling, you know, kind of oh, guilty, like, yes. you know, maybe I need to give him another chance, this I is know. Maybe, you know, because they, they, you know, he was acting like he had really changed yeah. and I think he is trying to change. Yeah. But I don't think he has the supports and the, you know, therapy that he's really needed to change. He's not there yet. Yeah. And it gets harder the older they get. It's so easy to, to just see them in a more positive light, have more compassion. Yes. That distance. It's so easy to get sucked into that. I mean, I still get sucked into stuff at home with my son because that is that nurturing piece of us. Right. And, and that hopeful piece. And you see that one moment of good and you just want to like, Oh, this is it. Mm -hmm. Ride that wave, but it's not realistic usually. Right. Mm -hmm. Did you know that rad talk with Tracy is not just a podcast. We offer one of a kind support services for parents, including supportive coaching support groups and retreats. Rad Talk with Tracy is an online and in-person support community for parents raising children with reactive attachment disorder or RAD. You're not crazy and you're not alone. Rad Talk with Tracy is a place where you'll feel understood, connected, and receive the right support. If you're looking for your people, your community, and a place where you can feel at home and start feeling better, visit radtalkwithtracy.com. Check out our services and sign up for the one that's right for you. One one thing that he told me, we had a lot of conversations while he was home. And one thing he told me that was very interesting is I was talking about his really extreme behaviors and how, you know, he used to do things like, um, you know, assaulting staff at facilities or uh, running away from facilities. A lot of things actually that happened after the book where he was getting arrested for different things and he got some criminal charges. And I said to him, I said, well, you know, what could we have done um, to have contained you or to have kept you from doing all those things? What could we have done in those situations when you're, say, when you're at like a PRTF or something and you want uh, something and what could we have done so that you would not have assaulted staff or you would not have broken something or run away? Right. And he, and he just laughed and he said, there's nothing you could have done. Wow. And I thought that was, and he wasn't doing it meanly. No, he was actually doing it kind of sincerely what he was saying. And I I thought that was very interesting because that was actually what I've always thought was there isn't anything you can do at that point. Right. If they're choosing 
to to keep upping the ante like that, there really isn't anything we can do. But it was kind of interesting because he's old enough to kind of look back on that and come to that conclusion himself and say, no, you're right, mom. There actually was nothing you could do to stop me. And, and I thought that was kind of an interesting thought. So how old was he when you adopted? How long was he in your home? What was happening? And then you talk about where he is now. Is he living on his own or in a independent living kind of group home situation? Or talk a little bit about that whole trajectory. Yeah. So he was three when he came to us. And then we had our pre-adoptive waiting period. So he was four when we actually adopted him. And, you know, he, as his behaviors escalated, cause he did have those behaviors actually since the beginning when we adopted him, but he was little, so I could pick him up, put him in bed, in right. his bed. I could, you know, move him around. He's very, he's small. He was, you know, very young. Um, and I just kept thinking I can handle this. I can handle this. It just never really occurred to me that I couldn't as he was getting bigger. And I just kept trying different things mm-hmm. until he became, until he was 10 years old. And that's when I kind of had my uh, moment where I realized that it was too much for me to handle, which was when he um, pushed his little brother down the stairs. And I realized that somebody could seriously get hurt yeah, and that I was in this danger zone where someone could actually get killed um, mm. with this. And I, and I'm not saying he was intending to kill him, but that was, could happen mm. with that level of violence going on right. in the home. And I realized I was not able to protect him and protect the other kids. Sure. And so that's when I started looking into treatment seriously and eventually got him into um, residential treatment. And he went into treatment when he was in 10 into a residential facility. And I really thought at the time he'd come home within six months. It never occurred to me that, that it would be permanent, but I didn't know anything about these facilities. Um, I didn't, I didn't even know what a PRTF was. Honestly, I yeah. had no idea. I didn't know yeah. what a group home was. I'd no. never heard of these things. Yeah. So I thought he would come home, um, but he didn't, he never came home again. He did do some visitations, you know, for, uh, weekends, three days at a time until he was about 15. And then he started making false allegations against people, staff and getting them in trouble. And so I got nervous that he would make false allegations against me. Of course. So then I said, then I said, I just don't think it's safe for him to come home. Um, so I started doing visitations at the facility. So he didn't, from that point on, even come home for visitations. In the state I'm from, it's very difficult for kids to stay. I mean, their goal is to stabilize and let's get them back home mm-hmm. or get them somewhere else. Uh, so, you know, when I hear about people who've been able to have their children stay at these facilities for six months or longer or a year, and you're saying permanently- yeah. Years. How does that happen? Was it for your, in your situation, was it the severity of the problem they saw it or no? <laughs> well, <laughs> okay. Well, first of all, over those eight years, I think he was in 16 facilities. Really? In eight yes. years? Yes. Wow. Um, and he had Medicaid, um, yeah. cause he was a foster child. And so, um, I was fighting constantly with them Mm -hmm. because they were trying to send him home. And the reason, the only reason I was able to keep him in was because I was keeping documentation and I was actively fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. And then once I figured out how the system in North Carolina worked, and I realized that they had to step him down through the levels 
and I knew what the requirements were, I was making sure to document so I could prove that he was not safely able to step down, that he had not met those requirements. And so I was very, very active in keeping in in those treatment. And then in the last year, they did what was called um, uh, health and safety discharge, which basically means we can't keep him safe. We're going to discharge him, which would automatically send him home. He was 17. I think. What did you call it again? It was called a health and safety discharge. Okay. Because normally if they discharge him the regular way, at least in North Carolina, they're responsible to find him a new placement, which is what had happened previously. So in this case, basically they were sending him home. And so the facility contacted me and said, if I would pay them several thousand dollars a month out of pocket, in addition to the Medicaid, you know, basically it was extortion. They would withdraw that health and safety discharge. And I chose to do that in order to keep him in care because sometimes these are the things you have to do. You know, you have to, it comes down to that. You'll do whatever you have to do to save yourself, your family, safety. That, that, that's right. Sometimes you're just like, yeah, whatever. Okay. Yeah. I'll do it. So that's how that lasts about nine months is how I ended up keeping him in care. I'm just in a way that they're so, and it's just because I'm in the medical field and I've been doing this a long time, but so many things wrong with what you just said. I know. I'm amazed that there's a way out for a facility to just say we can't handle them, but that the answer is to drop down the level of care to home. Because right. if you have a fully staffed facility that can't handle these kiddos with trained psychologists and physicians and nurses, and it's just, it just blows my mind that when there's no option there, the, the answer is home, right? Yeah. Well, and get this also, that <laughs> facility was a privately owned facility Uh, that was getting those funds. And one of the reasons that they were doing that was because he needed a one-on-one because his behavior was so so horrific. Mm -hmm. And because of the cost of that, that's why I'm sure that's why they were doing that because they didn't want to pay. And and I do get that, right? Because there there's, that's reality also, Mm -hmm. as much as I can say, yes, my son needs a one-on-one. Yeah. That costs something, right? So you have to look at that both ways. Yeah. How much that does cost a facility to have one staff to your child 24 seven for eight years. I mean, right. you think about the cost of that, right? That's right. also not reasonable. So. Yeah. yeah. And that's where it gets tough. Cause like you say, you definitely do see the other side and if Medicare doesn't cover it, then what do you do? What do they do? But it's just, right. there's no middle ground, right? It's all or nothing. It's that's, all that's or nothing right. in most cases. That's right. Wow. So, so wow, then when wow. he was 18, the day he turned 18, we, they, we had been trying to get him into different um, other programs because they have some programs that Medicaid will pay for after kids turn 18 to help them transition, but nobody would take him because of his behaviors. Right. And I guess, I guess the facility was telling him that I would take him home, which I had said I would not. Um, but they kept saying that. And then on his birthday, they gave me half an hour notice and dropped him off my front door. Really? Yes, they did. And yes. And this was like right around like the time, uh, about COVID time was great. (laughs) Yes. And I just, I just want to stop you for one second because in all of this, again, 
you know, we are already stressed out with these kids at home and not having the services and support we need. And then we, we are often the ones that do all the work. I'm just reliving. I won't talk about it, but I'm just reliving, reliving all the things we had to do to get our daughter into care. So we get them into care and then you don't have any time to, to help yourself because then you're so focused and you'll do it because like what you're talking about is you'll do it because what's the other option? It's not good. And so you'll do whatever it takes to make sure your child is wherever the safest place for them to be and your family to be is, Mm -hmm. but just how exhausted were you? Are we, I mean, it's never ending. And then balancing this, Oh, he might come home and we've got the next facility, the next facility. I mean, 16 facilities, you're doing all that work and the feelings of fear and terror that, Oh, maybe this is the day they come home and they're not ready. I just want people to see that behind the scenes. You know, we talk about this so matter of factly, but all of that, I just keep looking at you thinking, oh my gosh, how stressed were you? You're still having to go through all of this. And now they drop the, drop your son back on your doorstep. Right. And I, and I was fortunate because, you know, I was having to take a couple of days off of work every month to go travel because a lot of these facilities would be four hours away in North Carolina because mm. he was all over the state. You know, there are a lot of families that can't do that, you no. know? So I actually was very fortunate mm-hmm. in my situation. And as you say, I was able to keep him care for eight years. Most people cannot do that. So I actually consider myself very fortunate and I'm very thankful for Medicaid and what mm-hmm. I was able to do. Cause I do understand my situation was more fortunate than many, Yeah, but yeah. So they dropped him off at my door. So I actually put him in a hotel, um, while I was trying to find a place for him to go, um, looking at some different options. And then one day he called me after, I don't know, maybe a week and a half and said, if I didn't buy him an iPad, he was leaving the hotel. Oh, wow. (laughs) And how old was he at this time? Carrie? He was 18. 18. 18. Okay. Yeah. So he left the hotel (laughs) and then he, uh, was living on the street for a little while. And I was still seeing him because I had he, his medications. Cause as you know, a lot of these kids are on medications that are controlled substances. And I was really nervous about that because I didn't want him obviously selling them or, you know, stealing them from him. I also want to make sure he was taking them. Sure. So I had, um, offered to him that I would hold his medications and meet him every two days and give him two days worth. Also give him some money for food, which is probably why he let me hold on to the medication. So I was doing that. So I was kind of keeping tabs on him in that way. And that's when he also got some more felony charges, doing some breaking, entering things. But, you know, kids kind of glorify living on the street. Yeah, Um, they do. Yeah. And so he had done that and he lived on the street for a little while, maybe two months. And he really did not like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that is when he started making better choices. Wow. Yes. Um, and that does go to show what a lot of us know, which is our kids can make better choices when yes. they want to, right. and when they are properly incentivized. Mm-hmm. And that is when he started making better choices and he yeah. was able to <laughs> Yeah. So, and he was able to go live in a, in a home and, um, he actually was able to go back and earn his diploma, finish school because they had some COVID, you know, accommodations for school at the time going on and things like that. So that was like a major turning point for him actually having to go live on the street because he realized that it wasn't 
all fun. Mm-hmm. The wake up call, the aha moment, not yeah. what I thought. Yeah. This isn't mm-hmm. fun. And <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, so he has, there's a, like a nonprofit organization right now where he's living in a home with someone and he has a job. He's had a few jobs. Um, so he is trying to do some independent living, but he's kind of le- learned that there are consequences, there are real consequences and he's mm-hmm. making better choices, which he's always had the ability to make those choices. He just has not been choosing to, which I think there's a lesson there. If we could figure out how to get exactly. incentivized kids properly earlier. I know. And it's so different for every child with rad or without rad that those, yeah. you know, what motivates us and, uh, and then brain development, where we're at with that, the logical frontal lobe. Ugh, it's yeah, but you're right. That would be really nice if we could just find that magic bullet. Right. Right. Well, and you know, I know you read my book, but when he went to the first facility that he's at, uh, from the age of 10 to 12, and they were very permissive. I think that actually is what put us on that path. And had he Mm. been in a facility that maybe had had more consequences or even just kind of natural consequences. Mm-hmm. I think maybe he wouldn't have gone down that path, but he really became institutionalized there and started to understand how to work the system. They do, you know, and he was, yeah. only, and he was 10. There might've yeah. been some room there to say, wait a second, let's kind of yeah. rein it in, you yeah. know? Well, they're smart kids. And that's the frustrating thing too, is enough therapy that they can sound like a therapist and they know what to say and how to say it. And they lose that ability to speak from a feeling place. Uh, and yeah, and they learn from other children, you know, I used to have a hard time because I'm thinking, well, all the other kids are having difficulties. And so now they're surrounded by kids just like themselves all struggling, which can sometimes be comforting, but at the same time, then you're all learning from each other's behaviors and those are not the most positive, right? They're negative behaviors. And there's just so much in this. It makes me crazy when I I think about it, but hearing you again, and this is something I know that it's hard, but I think it just helps to realize, you know, somebody told me, I can't remember who it was, but they said, you know, Tracy, you can't win every race. Nobody wins every race. And I don't think we ever think of parenting as winning or losing, but when you're faced with a monumental task like this of raising a child with such high specific needs and little support in this time, it's really hard to let go and just admit, like, I, you know, I think that's why that comment you made earlier in the interview was so poignant was that it's okay that you can't. Mm -hmm. And I often told myself this and tell people, you know, it helped me to look at other people, whether it was family members or friends and think, could they do this? No, I just know there's a lot, a lot of people that would step away a lot sooner than I did. Mm -hmm. Right. And so including our child's previous foster parent who I was one of those people who thought, what are you doing? It's you, it's parenting. And then within months, I was like, oh, nope, I totally get it. And kudos to you because you had the boundaries and the ability and the strength to say, I can't do this. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to put myself in this situation or my family done. And Mm -hmm. that feels like such a taboo right? In the parenting world, that's a taboo. Oh yeah. 
oh yeah, no wonder there's fear around it. And Mm -hmm. then we're not people who give up and you want the best for your kids. And it's a tough place to, to get to, to be able to say, I I can't do this and be okay with it. Right. It it is. It, yeah, I think it's, it's a, it's a huge struggle. And as you said, it would be easier if people around us also understood, Yeah, you know, and that's why I think it is important that, you know, more and more the rad moms are finding the rad moms Mm -hmm. and at least getting, (laughs) getting the support. Um, because I think once you do realize you're not alone, that was a huge turning point for me as well is because I think like most rad moms, we kind of think we're alone. We think we're like, oh my God, what is going on? It's just me. And you have no idea. And then when you realize that it's not just you, it's, it's really can be, I mean, I don't think it's understanding it's safe, life-changing yeah. <laughs> to realize that it's not just you. Oh, I know. It um, gives me goosebumps. Just thinking about that feeling yeah. of when you connect with another rad mom and whether it's through like your book, huge, and it doesn't have to be your story. I think those core elements of our stories are there and then mm-hmm. all the other stuff around it may be different, but boy, a lot of the, the key stuff is there and it's relatable no matter, you know, whose story or whatever. And there's such comfort in that and such a relief with your book. I think I bent this spine (laughs) (laughs) writing it. At one point I had my parents read it and, you know, you can read, you read in the book that my mom, you know, was one of those people who said, Oh, if you just love him more. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) You know, and when she read the book, she actually came back and apologized to me. And that when she did that, it really surprised me because up until that point, I had always really thought that people who didn't understand were almost willfully doing that. Mm. Like there was some sort of willful component to that. Like they just didn't care or they didn't want to understand, or they just didn't really just believe me, I was taking it very personally, I guess. Yeah. And when she did that and my dad read it, my dad had to like, and this was a draft version. Um, but when he read it, he said he read some of it and then he started crying and had to stop and then read some more because it was so emotional for him. Whoa. And that, that made me feel like, you know, sometimes these people, they literally don't understand what we're going through. It's not that they don't want to support us. It's that it's so far beyond their ability to understand. It's so outside of the context of their own lives. There's no frame of reference for it. That's, that's right. And my hope, my hope is that this book will, even though, as you say, it's not the same identical to everybody's story, it will provide this frame of reference where someone can say, oh yeah, I I do understand because I read that book and I kind of get that now, what you might be going through and some of what that emotions look like or what that could be. Right. Um, because I, it was very uh, meaningful to me when my parents said that because it made me realize this wasn't intentional all along. They really didn't. They didn't get it. They really didn't get it. They really didn't get it. Not because they just felt bad for my kid, but because it was so far outside of their frame of reference. And not because they were judging you and thinking it's just a bad parent. This is just something that you're saying or doing. It's really these poor kids because your parenting is terrible. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some people, I always say like in the, in the meetings, you know, you can talk about something, but some people need to see the pie chart or they need to step into somebody's shoes to really be able to identify with it. So, and you definitely have the ability to bring people right there. 
<laughs> so I'm glad, you know, sadly your story <laughs> is, is what you had to live through. And sadly it's true. And, and that it is real when you're reading these words. So what are your plans going forward? I know we don't have a lot of time, but are you, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually hoping next time I write something, it'll be something more, it'll be a little more fun. There you go. <laughs> but I do think it's important for some of us who have are on the other side of it to be speaking up for everyone mm -hmm. and boldly telling the truth. And I think yeah. there is, like I said, a lot of shame around this. Yeah. And so it's hard for people to, you know, as you read in my book, you know, I'm very transparent about the mistakes that I made mm -hmm. and, you know, it doesn't make me look good. It's a lot of places in the book. I look like terrible, but I felt like it was very important to be really honest um, yeah. because that's the place that moms go. Yeah. And we have to be honest about that. Or yeah. We're never going to get help for our families everybody just needs so much support and there's just not enough out. out. And I did want to say in your book, you know, it's funny you say, Oh, I painted myself as this bad mom, maybe to somebody that wasn't a rad mom. But when I read your book and I'm going to assume for other people too, that don't have kids with reactive attachment disorder, I think by telling your story and what you go through, I think people can actually relate and probably put themselves in the same situation saying, I probably would have done the same thing. I can totally get why that person, why you're doing that or saying that again, I think that's that judgment we put on ourselves, but really from an outsider's perspective, reading that I didn't, there wasn't one time I ever would have thought that. I think a lot of times as rad moms, when we finally do get help, we're usually in crisis, you mm -hmm. know, and we go into a therapist's office and they think that we're out of our minds, that we're mm -hmm. terrible moms. Yeah. And my hope is that some of those therapists will read this book and they'll understand why, yeah. and it will make them start asking some questions of those moms instead of assuming that they're bad moms and that right. they're mean and they're whatever. Cause sure. I mean, I look like I was out of my mind. Mm -hmm. Um, I can see that in retrospect when I went in yeah. to therapy sessions, because I was really like just barely hanging on by a thread at that point. Yeah. But my hope is that they'll see the backstory to that mm -hmm. and say, okay, well, what's going on? How did she get to here? There's, there's a yeah. story. There's a reason she got to here. And that's kind of what my hope is, as you said, not just having the, the rad community read the book, but to have other people read it yeah. is that maybe they'll take a second look at that mm -hmm. and say, maybe we're missing, we're missing something. I'm so glad you wrote this book and thanks for sharing your story and talking about your book today. And, and thanks for just being another rad mom out there making a difference. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I hope you'll be back to listen to future episodes. If you like the show, please subscribe and help me spread the word by clicking share and like. If you're a parent who needs more support, whether it's for you or your family, please check out my website at radtalkwithtracy.com and visit radadvocates.org.